Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. For season 10 of the podcast, I'm interviewing a dozen futurists about what life will be like for humans 30 to 50 years from now. Today's guest is author, speaker, and futurist Gert Leonhardt. In his most recent book, Technology Versus Humanity, Gert asks the question, how do we embrace technology without becoming it? In our conversation, Gert paints a picture of what life can be like in 2053. He discusses the very real possibilities of humans being able to upload our brains to the cloud, how we'll embrace quantum computing and harness fusion energy, and he even gets into space travel. Garrett also discusses some of our current behaviors, like our approach to work and the way the world is governed that in 50 years will be judged as archaic. Garrett, welcome back to 12 Geniuses. Hey, it's great to be back here. There are a lot of people who have an incredible amount of fear and anxiety about the future. And what I'm interested in doing with these 12 conversations with futurists is having an understanding or helping our audience have an understanding of what's possible in the future. And so I want to start by asking you to paint a picture of what life in 2053 is going to be like. Well, you know, I always say that the future is not so much about what is possible, but it's about what we want. Because in, in terms of technology and feasibility, most of it is becoming possible. And when we look at 2053, we will be way beyond possibilities then. I think in 2030, we're going to be already at the point to where things that are science fiction are possible, like uploading our brain, you know, thinking to the internet, possibly quantum computing, which would do away with any restriction on computing, really. A fossil fuel economy would be shifted around by the shift to nuclear fusion, that's not 2030, but maybe 2040. Very, very big changing factors. And I think the real challenge for us will be that we could probably invent pretty much anything. Once we have nuclear fusion, for example, then it's basically energy abundance, right? And water abundance, because we use water to desalinate. And food abundance, because we need energy for the, for the high rises and for the vertical farms, right? And all comes one to the other. So. I think there's basically two possible scenarios for 2050. First, if we have used technology wisely to create a global benefit of all the technology that we already have, and we turn around the fossil fuel economy, which is, in my view, very likely, right? And then we can go back and bring it back to the 350 ppms. We can rebalance the world by carbon sequestration and all of these things that becomes a, the good future, as I called it, right? And if in the next 10 years, we, however, do not make the right decisions and we end up using AI for warfare, we don't make a decisive shift to renewable energy, we don't collaborate, we don't create the global consciousness that is needed, right? We stick with the old fashioned approach to money and growth. Then 2053 could be dark in the sense of uh, the machines ruling around yeah. that a very, very depleted planet, roughly four degrees of warming by then. And that could mean living in a bunker, essentially living in a, in a bubble, like on Mars, you know, but here, and 500 million climate refugees. So the, both of the scenarios are possible. You know, I, I predict and I, I would, I would I foresee that in the next 10 years, the decisions that we're making will be relatively driven by this kind of realization that we have all the tools we're just doing the wrong thing with it. And by an economic revolution, that is going to question our good old logic. So 
I always say jokingly, it's like 1968, you know, when I was seven years old, when the whole world in five years, 68 to 73, mostly driven by the US, but also by, uh, by Asia, of course, Vietnam and so on, you know, the whole world became different. The music revolution, the sexual revolution, the political revolution, the economic revolution, right? The boom, you know, the, and then the rise of the internet. So basically 2023 is like this. We're going to have this revolution that will play out for five years. And then the outcome could be a kind of, I wouldn't say utopia. Utopia never happens, but I call it protopia, you know, a stepwise approach to the future. So you determine this or said this term, the good future, who will determine on which path we go? Is it countries, global leaders? Do we need to make these decisions together in unison in order to realize this good future? How will we get there? I think uh, humans change because of two factors, you know, pain and love. And that's generally true for every human and no matter what culture. We don't change if we don't have a reason, right? So we're going to see a lot of pain, starting with climate change, economic turmoil, and, and so on. And there's a lot of things to love, like uh, many progresses that we've already made. You know, we've already moved like 100 million people out of poverty. We've reduced childbirth death. We have done all of those things already. So we fall in love with these new ideas, right? And who decides? Well, in the end, it's, I think it's really the first question is what is good, right? And people ask me about this all the time when I talk about the good future. Well, I think basically good is the opposite of bad, right? So good means I have a job. I have a right to work. I have some civil rights. I have self-realization. I can have kids, family. I can prosper. But good doesn't mean having three cars or owning a house or you know, good on the, like the Maslow pyramid, the bottom two parts, right? If we can solve that for everybody, for that 10 billion people, that's good. Okay. So that's what I would define as good. I don't define good as living in Switzerland or being rich or, you know, that's all further up the pyramid. And then the question is who, who comes up with that? Well, basically what's happening, I think it's quite clear. Politicians will not go in front of the good future until there's everybody asking for it. And people are starting to ask very loudly. So we take the UK's Extinction Rebellion times 1000. We're going to see that in the next decade. You know, anybody that's not on the sustainable agenda will be attacked, literally or otherwise, or financially attacked, right? And that's already happening. So basically, it's a movement towards the good future where people are saying we're sick and tired of, you know, all the money going in one direction, all the power going to technology not having enough things to say, our politicians not taking actions, and then po politicians will jump to the, to the occasion, right? And go behind it, which is what they usually do, right? So there has to be a groundswell, a movement. And, you know, I think there's a thing called the Gandhi effect, which basically says that if 5% of the population are seriously asking and pushing forward, if you go in front of that, you can make it 10% and very soon it's normal, you know? And, and we're going to see that in the next five years, right? New leaders and new movements, and then the CEOs and the politicians will jump on it. You talked about a number of technologies at the beginning of this conversation. You talked about uploading your consciousness or uploading your brain to some sort of cloud or something like that. We're really kind of uncertain what that might look like. You talked about quantum and nuclear fusion. Can you talk about the benefits that we're going to realize and what, like, what uploading your brain or your consciousness might mean to 
what it means to be human. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a proponent of the singularity transhumanism scenario of uploading the brain, for example, but I'm a strong proponent of technological progress for, for the collective good. So first of all, what we're going to see is that our, our world is very heavily still disconnected and not functioning very smart. Whether it's agriculture, culture, or food, or transportation, it's a very old-fashioned industrial economy, and to some degree, digital economy, right? But what we're going to see is everything becoming smart, right? Transportation, logistics, climate change monitoring, climate change technology everywhere. The next 100 unicorns will all be in climate tech, right? I mean, everybody agrees on that because we have, this, we have the solutions now. So we're going to see dramatic changes in, in that technology that will enable us to do everything cheaper, faster, more efficiently, less pollution. And that would solve half the problem right there without even switching to, away from fossil fuels, right? And then we have the technological capability. For example, solar is already cheaper than coal in many countries, like in Spain or in India, right? And so that switch is coming. It's the end of fossil fuel as a business in, you know, five to 10 years, probably sooner. Right? So we see all these great uh, accomplishments and, and material sciences will allow us to use the materials that, that come from nature, like minerals, to build mobile phones or batteries and to basically create, to rebuild it as, as a technology. Right? And healthcare will be turned upside down by digital therapeutics and by using devices that connect us, that teach us how to improve our health. You know, we're going to have real healthcare, not just sick care, what we have today. But, so all of these are phenomenal benefits that technology gives us. However, here's one thing, right? We will have all the tech, but will we have the telos, you know, the Greek word for the will, right? Will we have government in, and, and politicians and CEOs saying, this is good, and therefore we can distribute the benefits. For example, what we're clearly going to see is that artificial intelligence will mean that we can work less ourselves because the commodity work, you know, the donkey work, monkey work, whatever, you know, routine work that many of us have to do, like, you know, uh, stocking the shelf, unloading trucks, and in our case, you know, filing, researching, and so on. Yeah, the machines will learn all of that, right? And then it means we have, we can only work two or three hours a day if we get the same money, right? So there are lots and lots of if questions, but technology is leaping into that age where it's possible. So as Kevin Kelly says, we should not be hopeful and optimistic about the future because we have less problems. If we don't have less problems, we have, you know, look at the Russia-Ukraine thing and so on, right? But because we have more capacity to solve. And I think this is the key to our future. Let's focus on the things that we can solve. Let's turn them into reality by putting the right policy in place. Let's protect humanity by sharing the benefit. And that could be 2050, a kind of Star Trek economy. <laughs> and truly, we are going to go to other planets by 2050. Right? Once we have you know, propulsion using nuclear fusion, that's obviously the ticket, right? And AI will go first. So clearly that's, that's, that could be potentially great. You mentioned nuclear fusion earlier. You said by 2040, that should be realized. 2040 is not that far away. 17 years is not that far away. Do you really believe that that timeline is achievable? And can you talk about how fundamentally that is going to change how we power our planet and even go into space? Because that's really, really exciting. 
Yeah, I mean, we have, in terms of climate change, we have a 20-year problem. What we have today isn't capable of providing us with enough juice. You know, solar energy and, and everything we have, and even nuclear, it will not replace 78% or so of fossil fuels tomorrow, right? So what we can do today is, A, reduce all the possible sources of using energy or wasting stuff like food, pollution, bad efficiency, bad infrastructure, you know, to reduce how much we need. We need to ultimately continue with a growth of a sort, not, you know, exponential growth in terms of people and so on. But degrowth is not a good topic, you know, will not sell, I don't think, to the public. And we have to decouple that from CO2. So if we can grow healthily, sustainably, and decouple that from, from CO2, so CO2 doesn't go along in the same way, right? If it does, there's no use in having GDP growth, right? Because, you know, then it's the end. So basically what happens in the next 20 years, we have to do everything we can to reduce output of CO2, leave the carbon in the ground, and go full speed on every development across the board from nuclear safe, nuclear, next generation nuclear that we have now, which I believe is unfortunately unavoidable. It creates other problems, of course, in solar and wind energy and every other component of this energy until we get to the point where nuclear fusion is, you know, in my backpack. So I can heat the whole city with a reactor the size of my backpack, which is coming. And that would be energy abundance, which will lead to abundance in every possible other way. Right? How far? Well, you should ask the people in CERN or in New Jersey that have just announced a few weeks ago a major breakthrough. I think we're probably 15 years away from that to happen. Maybe, you know, it, it's potentially dangerous to invent, but once we have it. So I think there's a lot of what ifs there, right? but clearly abundant energy would solve pretty much all our practical problems. You know, not our political problems, but our practical problems. To use a historic reference, the first residential air conditioners were kind of popularized in the 1940s and they were window units. They were really small units to, to cool a room. And then by the 1970s, we were using industrial air conditioning to cool malls and to cool enormous stadiums like the Houston Astrodome and things like that. So a lot of progress can be made in 30 years in terms of technology. And I think that's what I want the audience to understand with relation to fusion and quantum and even AI and uploading consciousness and, and these types of things. Like we may be at the nascent stages. So I think there's a few things where we can safely say that technology would make it possible you know, brain-computer interfaces, electrodes in my in my head, like Elon Musk has been suggesting with Neuralink. In theory, it would be possible to transmit something, you know, to 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 some database of the. But the question is, is it desirable? And my view is that it's probably feasible, you know, by twenty thirty or so, but not very desirable because we wouldn't gain anything from that except for you know having a two million dollar device and two years of training, so that a paraplegic can walk again using the same, you know, that's great, but it's, it's not a solution for everything, you know, it's a solution for a paraplegic and for, for people who, you know, otherwise can't do things. But so we have to always judge things by the, how applicable is it? How much benefit does it generate? For example, I think we need to also maintain our humanity by saying that we use technology, but we should still be able to function in a basic way. 
without technology, for example, I, well, some people can't function without pills, for example, right? That's different because they're sick. But if I'm going to amplify my mind and in the morning I have to boot up, you know, to the machine so I can get out of bed, I would perceive that to be not a real advantage. Uh, the convergence of humans and machines, you know. You're bringing up a really important point, which is just because we can doesn't mean we should, right? And so what's the ethical way to use some of these technological advances? And in my opinion, and I would be curious to hear your opinion, my opinion is we don't have enough of these discussions. We just create the technology and start to use it without really thinking about how is it going to positively or negatively affect humanity? Yeah, I mean, we had a similar scenario now with chat GPT and artificial intelligence, you know, going into the search engine. And it's quite clear that it is irresponsible to put out a, a chat engine that is perceived as a truth speaker and as an answering machine, which it clearly is not. You know, it is an interesting kind of search variation. It has answers, but a search engine is completely different than an answering engine. And, you know, if I could speak to my wristwatch and say, please show me the best restaurant, you know, then it will give me links and I can pick. But this machine will actually run my life for me if I ask it to, right? And so responsibility, when it's about launching new things, really has to be carefully thought about. And I think Microsoft is doing the right thing by restraining Bing, and by making it part of the regular search engine and by doing, you know, calibrated testing. However, I would caution that maybe money will lead them astray into, you know, creating more of a buzz around this. I think this whole AI thing is like a Sputnik moment now, and everybody wants to get to the moon now. <laughs> you know? and, and I think AI is the same way. We can't just say that because, you know, we can become superhuman and, you know, connect ourselves to the internet 24-7 and be super powerful, that this is the right thing to do. Just because, you know, we may have the machine for it. I mean, th this creates myriads of issues. And so I think anything that has to do with the you know, longevity, like living healthier, longer, better, you know, for the most part, if everybody can have it, I think that's good. And it's, I think it's good to maintain your body and to be more aware and to get data. But to be superhuman or never die, you know, I think there's a certain, there's a certain limit to how much of that society could handle. And also... Is that good for us in terms of if we were amortal, to use the term I learned from Yuval Noah Harari, if we became amortal, like, would we have urgency to create and live and love in the way that we do now because we know life is finite? But I, I want to talk about this idea of progressophobia, which is a term that I learned for the first time from Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now. And it's basically the inability to acknowledge progress that has been made societally. So progress around civil rights and gay rights and even how we smoke and where we smoke. You know, we, we've made incredible progress over the last 50 years, over the last 100 years. And what I want to ask you is, what are we doing now in 2023 that humans will look back at in 50 years and just shake their head in disbelief? Oh, yeah. Well, there, of course, there are a lot of things that are in that, in that domain, starting with fossil fuels, you know, which we're using 84, 80, some 78% now, which clearly we don't have to, but we're doing it because the money is there. Yeah. The fossil fuel industry makes two and a half billion dollars profit per day. And a lot of things get bought with that kind of power, right? It, and, and people are going to shake their head in 10 years and say, what the hell were they thinking, right? 
It's like, you know, we, we have all these options. We just keep going back to the same old, you know, same old, same old, because that's how things are, you know? So that's one thing. The other thing is, I think, in terms of technological progress is to think about how work will be structured in the future. People will laugh about what we're doing today, you know, regular work hours, eight to 10 hours a day, going to a location, all of that will be basically work will be a calling and something that you do as a, as a, a, a professional thing. It may get paid by the hour. It may never get paid at all. It may get paid without working and work will not be the center of our lives. Uh, again, Star Trek, right? This is the whole, in Star Trek, the only positive science fiction film in a long time. You see how that shakes out. People are working, that you don't know how they get paid, but money isn't involved. Nobody talks about money. And, and I think if we can go to a world where everybody's taken care of and we all get what we need, and then we can add something on top and there'll still be differences and richness and stuff, right? But not in the same sort of proportional you know, hunting for money kind of way. I think people will laugh about that in 20 years. Yeah. When work becomes something that we do because it's our calling and you, you get made, you, you get, you may get paid billions for solving something very large like fusion energy, or you may get paid thousands just to be a mother or, or to set up a garden or, you know, and those kind of ideas, basic income, they're already floating around now, but people will laugh about how we do things today. And also the other thing that's happening is that people will laugh about in 2050 is this idea of nation states. You know, we're, we're all going to have our own culture that we're going to maintain our language, our food, our regionality. Of course, you know, this is part of being human, right? But the idea of countries running their own affairs, you know, that are based on defense, the security, safety, food, water, you know, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, it's already ridiculous now because if we don't solve these together, they're not going to be solved. Right? And by 2050, we'll be arriving at a global consciousness with our regional tastes and differences, you know, clearly intact, I hope. <laughs> right? So we still have the United States of Europe, right? And other places, but we'll arrive at a different place where it's about a common objective also because we're going to face what happens outside of Earth, right? And how we're going to do that by being Americans or English people or, I mean, we're going to be humans, right? And the other ones are not humans. And so I think this is going to lead us to a much larger story. I had a previous guest who said, how long is it going to take an earthling who moves to another planet to no longer be an earthling, but to be a Martian or to be a whatever else? How many generations is it going to take? And I hadn't thought about it in that way, but you know, we have Italian Americans, we have, you know, different something Americans who, you know, generations ago, their ancestors moved from Europe or moved from other parts of the world. They're, they think of themselves first and foremost as Americans. And so you can imagine a future where, yeah, somebody's going to be a Martian first, even though they originated from Earth. And, and that's just, it's mind blowing for people to think about that. Yeah. I mean, this of course, the great thing about America, I lived there 17 years is that you have this equalizing factor. Everybody's from somewhere else. It doesn't matter what your funny dialect is or what you look like in the end. Of course, you get disadvantaged in certain situations. That's also very American. But generally speaking, it, it is possible to come together and create something new. That's, of course, what America is, right? And in Europe, we have much more difficulties with that, right? And clearly, I think if we're going to get to the future intact and prosper, we have to lay aside all these things that 
our history uh, in the sense of saying, you know, we, we are French and we are Swiss and we, we're going to stay. No, I mean, in our culture, yes, but otherwise it, the future is forward together, right? And the other thing is, of course, that's happening is as we're looking at this future of coming together is that we have to, con have, to have to bring together resources, right? To make that work. And that is just so crucial. And we're already on the way of, you know, millennials and Gen Z are thinking of themselves very often as global citizens. If you talk to young people, they don't say, well, I'm, you know, I may live in Germany, I'm German, but I'm really a global citizen. Right? That's already happening. Gerd, always great to talk with you. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for your wisdom and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. We will return next week when I interview Chief Futurist from Deloitte, Mike Bechtel, who will paint a picture of how life on Earth will change over the next 30 to 50 years. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.